1: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased to have with us Professor Roger Morehouse. Professor Morehouse is a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Warsaw. He is the author of a good number of well-received books. And today we are speaking about his latest book, Poland, 1939. The outbreak of World War Two, published by Basic Books. Welcome, Professor Morehouse. Hello. Good afternoon.
2: Uh, professor, why did you write this book? Um, it was a rather um, obvious sort of follow-on from my previous book, which was uh, published in 2014, um, which was called The Devil's Alliance about the Nazi-Soviet Pact, um, which of course you know predates the invasion of Poland by about a week. Um, so this was a natural follow-on uh, from that book. It deals broadly with the same sort of time frame in the same area of the world. Um, and more broadly than that, it's a, it's a subject that is a sort of huge gap, really, in our collective understanding of World War II. Um I don't have too much interest in sort of um, retreading the areas of history that are already well trodden. Um, so I'd, I'd much rather do subjects that are that are less well known where I can actually feel like I'm making a some sort of contribution so I think this certainly fell into that category it's a um, a very interesting subject that traditionally gets overlooked I would I would suggest um, the Polish campaign in many ways sort of sets the standard It a rather horrible standard but it sets a standard for the the ongoing conflict of World War II it has all the traits of Uh, You know, the the way the war was conducted going forward, the targeting of civilians, um, you know, ideologically driven warfare, uh, indiscriminate aerial bombing, all of those sort of traits are there in the September campaign. So it has a lot. Uh, really, to discuss and a lot to 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 get our teeth into collectively um, so that's the, the main reason why I wanted to do it because usually it gets passed over in a couple of paragraphs or a couple of pages, and so there's a lot more there to discuss than than we traditionally uh, 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 take take for granted.
1: So there has not been um, a monograph written, or if if so, it's rather obscure and uh, few in number in English language on this campaign
2: uh yes that's true there there have been a couple of um monographs on it but they they tend to fall very sort of squarely into the uh into the category of military history and military history tends to be sometimes of questionable um, uh, some lyrical quality, shall we say. So um, it's not something that you would necessarily, that the ordinary reader of history would necessarily sort of curl up in bed with. Um, and I wanted to, uh, in a sense, sort of bring this story out of its a uh, little bit of a military history ghetto, perhaps and bring it out of that and make it more accessible. So I mean, I'm not a military historian, I'm really a political historian, but um, I, I, I wanted to cover this story because it hadn't been done, uh, and I think it's relevant and there's something there to be said. Um, and I essentially I, you know, I wanted to write a sort of non-military military history, if that makes sense. So it's a sort of human history of military events, if that makes sense. That's how I sort of justified it to myself. Um, so I wanted lots of first-hand accounts and to actually, you know, enable the reader to understand what was going on and understand, you know, the Polish perspective on these things. I think that was quite a crucial uh, aim to, uh, to, to to set out with. If your book
1: could be said to have a thesis, what, what would it be?
2: Um there's a couple of points to make the first one is the one I made just just a little bit earlier that there's you know all the traits that this this campaign has i think been forgotten by history generally or overlooked um all of the main traits of world war two warfare are there um so that so it rather um, uh, sort of contradicts the idea that this was in some way irrelevant um which I think might be the assumption so that would be point one the second one is that in the in the uh in the Absence of sort of knowledge and study of this period, we're left effectively with the the wartime propaganda uh, on both sides. On the German side, that this was you know a walkover, that it was a very vastly superior, to, you know, um, technologically adept force uh, destroying a much a much more primitive force, and all this sort of stories that ran along with that. Uh, you know, for example, the, the the long-standing myth of cavalry against tanks and so on. Um that's one that I wanted to try and uh, try and uh, demolish and get to the bottom of. Um, so we're left effectively with wartime mythology on both sides, the German side, as I've just described, and then the Soviet side, which effectively denied that they were there at all. There was, of course, a Soviet invasion of Poland in 1939, uh, which uh, even Mr. Putin still tries to deny on occasion. Um, so there was that's an important point to make that we are left with soviet um uh, wartime mythology which needs to be challenged um and the last point i think is is to suggest that there's a a polish voice here that has been ignored um where this is talked about at all it's talked about through almost exclusively through german sources and through a german prism Uh, and to do the story justice i wanted to bring as many polish voices uh, into the into the forum, into the discussion as possible. So that meant a, a, a trawl through the archives. So there's there's a number of threads there that I wanted to bring out very strongly um, in 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 writing the book. What were the
1: expectations of the Polish high command about how the Germans would uh, fight the campaign?
2: Uh, I think this again is one of those areas where I think we are languishing a little bit in the in the world of wartime mythology um the, the poles were really under no illusions that they would be up against a very uh stern test in 1939 they knew the germans are uh you know were much better equipped than they were had much more uh, much better equipment much better technology even a better military doctrine um but they were minded always minded to fight incidentally the poles were always minded to fight they weren't Going to surrender their sort of hard won in- independence of of 1918, they weren't going to surrender that easily um, or, or lightly. So they they initially went on a on a search, of course, for for foreign allies, which they did. They secured the uh, alliance of the British and the French shortly before the outbreak of war, and in that way, they expected to be able to at least hold out long enough so that the British and the French could assist them in the west and could relieve the pressure. On themselves, and they wanted to make sure that, you know, that Germany was aware that if it attacked Poland, it would be uh, incurring the wrath of London and Paris as well. So their uh, response to this, you know, they're, they're quite aware that the, the Germans are are numerically and technologically superior to them, but their response is a is both a military and a, and a sort of a strategic one to try and make sure that that um any attack on them would not be without consequence and that they did try to do they did uh fulfill all of those criteria unfortunately their western allies rather let them down which is again a, ma- a major theme of the book why did the polish plan of campaign
1: consist mostly of fighting the germans at the frontier rather than in the interior
2: that's a very good question the um the, the Polish state, as it was reconstituted in 1918, um, took a lot of territory from the collapsed empires around it. So th- this was obviously, there are very few defined boundaries in this area of Central and Eastern Europe, unfortunately, for all concerned. Um, so Poland had been, which was, you know, in, going back to the 17th century, was the largest state in Europe, for example, and stretched from the Baltic almost to the Black Sea. Um by the time of uh, you know the 19th century, Poland had ceased to exist. It had been gobbled up by its neighbours, uh, d- culminating in 1795 with the last of the partitions. So Poland is wiped from the map at that point. So it doesn't exist effectively in the 19th century. So by the time those three empires that had that had partitioned her. Um, collapse themselves, as they did at the end of the First World War, so Russia, Germany, and Austria-Hungary, all three collapsed at the end of the First World War, then Poland is again free to emerge from the from the ruins. And it does so by taking territory which has been claimed by one side or the other at some point. So there are various competing territorial claims going on. Um, and in the German case, this is particularly important because of the, claims, the competing claims to the Polish Corridor, uh, and to Danzig for example both of which are sort of heavily populated by Germans um, so by the time you jump forward to 1939 the Poles are really um, not keen to sort of cede territory to the Germans because that was this is territory that the Germans obviously claimed um, but the Poles were very keen not to fall into the same trap if you like of uh, allowing Hitler a free run they wanted any sort of Territorial transgression to 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 uh, have an effect and ha- and trigger some sort of diplomatic reaction. So that meant effectively, if you look at the map, if you look at a, a wartime map of uh, of uh, or pre-war map between Germany and Poland, you'll see it's a very different shape from how it is today. Poland strategically is in a very difficult situation. It's uh it's surrounded on three sides by German territory, so it's in a very difficult situation, and logic would probably dictate objectively speaking that that poland should have ceded territory at least allowed its its forces to to retreat to some sort of uh, at least semi defensible lines but the political imperative was not to give anything away because you didn't want the british and the french to have any excuse Any excuse by which they could say, well, if you're not going to defend yourselves, then we're not going to defend you either. You know, so it was a it was a a strategic decision made. Political decision was made um, that they would defend the frontier. So I have this sort of uh, almost like a tripwire effect so that if any German incursion would meet Polish forces, and that would trigger hopefully a political reaction and the and the western allies would uh, Poland's western allies would would uh, uh, come to their rescue so there was it was an important calculation it's quite clear that this was militarily rather nonsensical or at least ill advised but it was a political calculation that they would actually defend the frontiers
1: and in fact weren't there demonstrations in Poland in the summer late spring summer of 1939 uh spontaneous apparently not orchestrated by the sanjaka regime about uh, not giving in to german demands
2: yes absolutely i mean um you know poland is as i said it has this sort of rich history going back um into the middle ages and beyond Uh, and then it ceased to exist in 1795 and it's reconstituted after 123 years after the collapse of its uh, partitioning powers so there's a sort of a Uh, A a nationalistic hangover, we might say. Poland is one of those countries that is dying to sort of reconstitute itself, which it does after the First World War. And consequently, you know, for for good or ill, um, the Poland that emerges is quite nationalistic in tone. It wants to, uh, you know, uh, uh, secure its own place on the world map and its place in history. And it's not minded to give anything away to anyone. So again, there are these sort of demonstrations of um, opposition to any idea of concessions to germany because it it was perhaps a possibility that you know german saber rattling over danzig or over the polish corridor could feasibly have been uh, have resulted or or been been quietened rather by some sort of territorial concession um, that's an open question as to whether that would actually have uh, you know met hitler's demands and meant that he would back down personally i doubt it there's a much much deeper and much more sinister agenda going on in Berlin, um, but the initial demands were for territorial access across the Polish corridor and for the for the session of Danzig from the League of Nations. Um, so yes, there were initially the suggestion was that territorial concessions, you know, if they were made, would would satiate Berlin. How influential? Um, the, the from that that uh, a good proportion of Polish opinion was against those ideas.
1: Yes. That is the case and that it comes out very clearly in the German diplomatic um, dispatches from Warsaw to Berlin where they were actually rather taken aback by the degree of um, popular opposition. So, in fact, uh, Josef Beck, the Polish foreign minister, had very few, uh, very little, I should say, leeway to um, work out a settlement.
2: And again, I would doubt whether even had those demand territorial demands of Germany's been met by the Poles, I would doubt whether that would necessarily uh, stave off any, any sort of further German demands or, or German attack. I mean, Germany is is accelerating in its sort of headlong rush to, to expand territory and actually in a headlong rush to war at this point. So and it's becoming ever bolder. Certainly Hitler himself is becoming ever bolder at this time um so even as i said even had those territorial demands been met by the poles personally i doubt whether it actually would have uh, prevented conflict in how, the longer term
1: how influenced uh, was the polish military mind um by the in terms of uh, the 1939 campaign by the uh, Russo-Polish War of 1920 and in particular the Miracle on the Vistula in August
2: 1920? Mm. Um, that's a, a good question. A lot of uh, the, those sort of senior commanders in the Polish military in 1939 were veterans of the polish bolshevik war and of the the battle on the vistula uh, battle of uh, battle of warsaw in 1920 um so it did sort of loom large and this was again it was uh, it was described in sort of in the popular polish mind as as described as the the, the miracle on the vistula so it's seen as a sort of uh, uh a sort of miraculous victory against a superior opponent um, so there's a lot of the thinking in 1939 is broadly along the lines of, um, you know, well, yes, we might be up against it, against the Germans, but we, you know, we've done this before. We have defeated a superior opponent before. Uh, we've, we've uh, you know, grasped victory from the jaws of defeat, as we did in 1920, so we can do that again. So there's, this is sort of part of the folk memory to some extent. Um, and it has other effects as well, because um, this sort of, um the memory of the 1920 war 1919-1920 war uh is one that sort of colored Polish military thinking all through the 1930s um and actually delayed the development of any sort of armored and motorized arm uh in the military so this was an an, an important consequence it's, it's it's often said that you know any army is is essentially refighting the last war that it fought at any one time And for the Germans, for the British, for the French, that is, you know, the last engagements of the First World War, which were very sort of tank heavy. This is the beginnings of armoured warfare. So a lot of them are, you know, people like Guderian in Germany, people like um, Fuller in Britain uh, and someone like de Gaulle in France. They're all thinking about, uh, you know, armoured warfare as the future and they're, they're pushing to to have that adopted as as the strategy for the military going forward. But for the Poles, the last the last war they fought effectively was 1920 against the, against the Soviets, which was not a a, a war of tanks and and uh, armor. It was a war predominantly of cavalry. Um, so they're rather stuck. I mean, this is aside from any sort of economic concerns. Poland fundamentally couldn't afford to build up a large armored armored force in the interwar years. It simply didn't have the money, but it also didn't really have the ethos. It didn't have the idea because that was not the previous conflict that it had fought. So this is, to some extent, explains why cavalry was still so predominant uh, in Polish forces in 1939, because it's the long hangover from 1920. Would it be be correct to
1: say that the first few days of the campaign, particularly, I suppose, the first two or three, were effectively a stalemate?
2: Um, to some degree where it's interesting, to, you know, the, 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 the German narrative of all of this is that Poland effectively crumbled and Polish forces were ineffectual. Uh, And they collapsed pretty much from day one. Um, And to some extent, you can see that played out on the ground. So, you know, for example, German spearheads reach Warsaw, which is quite a good distance uh, from the German frontier. But they reach Warsaw already on, on the 8th of September. So after a little over a week. Um, They do then rather stall and elements are withdrawn to sort of deal with uh, deal with uh, Polish forces elsewhere so that it's not the capital is not yet encircled on the 8th, but they certainly reach the suburbs on the 8th. So it doesn't look good if you look at, you know, the dates like that. they reached the capital already after after day eight. But actually, if you look in more granular detail at some of the engagements on the first few days of the war, um, you can see that actually the Poles, particularly where they had um, static defences to defend, they actually f- could fight the Germans to a standstill. Uh, and there are a number of very good examples of that you know, places like the Gorka in the south or like the Muava defences up in the north to the north of Warsaw. Um, in those instances where they had static defences, where they had prepared lines, they could actually hold the Germans up very, very effectively. Uh, and there's another set piece battle down uh, at Mokra, down in the, in the southwest towards the Silesian frontier, where again um, uh, Polish cavalry, this was, fought a very effective uh, fighting retreat uh, against the, the, the German Fourth Panzer Army, and this was, you know, the, very much the spearhead that was heading for, but heading for Warsaw, but they were they were halted effectively for for a good 24 hours at Mokra. Um, So the Poles could, yes, they could actually hold up German forces very effectively, particularly where they had static defences. But the problem was that in all too too many instances, there were no static defences and no natural obstacles that could be exploited to to that effect. So in too many areas, they were being effectively routed at the frontier and then having nowhere, they, they couldn't retreat fast enough. They were being outrun even in their retreat. So that was the primary problem that they had.
1: And wasn't the additional problem is uh, that of reserves? When the um, uh, Germans broke through, there was no uh, sufficient amount of uh, reserves to throw in to cover the gap.
2: Uh, the Poles did have reserve armies. Um, you know Their dispositions were sort of quite well thought out. As I said, they were defending the frontier line broadly, but they did have reserves uh, in place that – one of the problems I think that you're alluding to really is that is that of the the sort of rather halting mobilisation that they'd they'd um, put into place, and they'd wanted to mobilise already at the end of uh, August um, so that they had their forces in place, but they had been advised against by the British and the French, who wanted effectively that that there should be no possible sort of provocation in commas any sort of provocation of Berlin any act that might be per, uh, perceived as provocation by Hitler so they'd prevailed upon the Poles to delay their mobilization and that meant that in, in many instances by the time they're actually attacked on on the morning of the 1st of September some of their forces are only up to about sort of 60% strength because the men are not in place the materials are not in place the tanks are not in place the horses are not there whatever it is um, so that was a, a fundamental problem. That's that's across the board. That's frontline units as well as as well as reserves. So although on paper the dispositions look quite good and the reserves are in place, the reality was somewhat different. That many of those units were vastly under strength. But it's primarily because of that uh, uh, delayed mobilisation.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
1: why did not the british and the french actively assist the poles by attacking the german um fortification the so-called siegfried line in the west of germany
2: um that's one of the sort of great i suppose what ifs of the book um the british and the french obviously committed to uh action in Poland's defense. The French actually made concrete commitments. I think the French betrayal of the Poles is actually arguably the greater of the two. The French made concrete commitments to the Poles that they would attack in the West on after day 15 of mobilization. Um, they attempted to do so. There is this sort of very minor assault called the Saar Offensive, which begins on the 8th of September, um and effectively advances about five kilometers um for about four or five days and then withdraws again um very hard i mean re, really redefines half hearted it's very half hearted indeed um and the open question is you know what would have happened had the french i mean bear bear in mind that you know this is only a week into the war, so British forces are not yet yet present on the continent, so that to some extent excuses them of uh of sort of complicity in that failure um so that the, the SAR is, is offensive is a french show but the question open question is well what might have been achieved had they attacked with any sort of vigor at all um and actually i think you know even from the german side the german commander in the west was astonished that the french were so half-hearted because he expected to actually have a fight on his hands and he knew that there, his own forces had been stripped to the bone, so he barely had any any uh, up to date armour. He barely had air cover because everything had been sent to the east to uh, to try and dispatch Poland as quickly as possible. So, had they actually attacked with any sort of vigour against this rather denuded uh, uh, Western German army, then it, they could have scored some notable successes. So, but uh, unfortunately, in the in the French case, as in the British. There was no political will to actually proactively take the fight to Germany in 1939. So they had enough political will to declare war, as they did on the 3rd of September, but they didn't actually have enough political will to, to, to actually take the war to Germany. So that you're left with this uh, effectively a sort of a if you don't attack us, we won't attack you mentality, uh, which prevails until May 1940, when, of course, the Germans attack.
1: What, if any, were the Polish military plans to deal with the possible two front war Germany on one side in the west, the Soviet Union in the east
2: um, The answer to that is very little i mean if you look at again, if you look at the map poland is is uh very exposed to uh, to the Germans alone in the West, as I said, you have this almost uh you know in the jaws of a German pincer in the western area with with uh, East Prussia to the north. Um, the idea of opposing the Soviets at the same time is militarily rather unthinkable to the Poles uh, in 1939. They simply don't have the manpower and the resources to do it. So they had two sets of broadly two sets of military plans, defensive plans, one An eastern plan for dealing with a soviet attack and then a western plan for dealing with a german attack but there's no concrete planning for dealing with an attack of both at the same time um, because it was simply impossible to do so um so this is why uh the attack of particularly of the soviets which you know the invasion on 17th of september 1939 and this is why this was so damaging to the poles because all of their forces were engaged in the west against the germans uh, and those forces that were holding the eastern frontier, very long eastern frontier against the Soviet Union, um, were effectively, you know, uh, uh, border guards who had no artillery, had no air cover, very lightly armed, effectively policemen, uh, and they really no match. They're not. They're not designed. They're not meant to hold up the Red Army in a in a sort of massed invasion of half a million men. Um, So they're in a very, very difficult situation. They simply don't have the the wherewithal to hold both sides uh, at the same time. Um, So the Soviet invasion really was the death knell for the the Poles in 1939 because they simply couldn't resist it.
1: Why were the Poles' civilian militaries surprised by the Soviet invasion?
2: Um, That's a a good question. I think to some extent they were um, not – Uh, Unaware of the hostility of the Soviet Union towards Poland, because that was kind of a given in the interwar years. This was, of course, the country that they had uh, fought against 1919-1920. Um, it was still seen broadly as a sort of Soviet Union was still seen as a as a rogue state, effectively in international affairs in the 1930s, and it was a revisionist state, crucially. So it was a state that wanted to revise the post-war status quo, wanted to revise the the Versailles settlement. So in that sense, it was a natural ally of Germany. Actually, when when many people say how 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 come the Germans and the Soviets found common cause in 1939 and signed signed the Nazi-Soviet Pact the easiest answer to that is that they're both revisionist powers they both want to destroy the status quo as it was in 1939 um so to to a large extent they shouldn't have been a great surprise that the that the soviets would uh, would invade um but there were other aspects that rather clouded thinking in warsaw i mean the, the on the first point i think the the ambassador in in moscow the polish ambassador in moscow uh, gorbovskiy Uh, was, uh, I think, a little bit hoodwinked by the Soviets, perhaps even a bit naive. He didn't even necessarily see the attack coming on the 17th of September. Um, A lot of the noises and the mood music coming out of uh, of Moscow at the time uh, were not immediately uh, aggressive towards Poland. There's lots of talk about the minorities and complaints about the status of, of and ukrainian minorities in poland which of course provides them with their 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 propagandistic reason for going into poland um, but there's not necessarily much in the way of hostile rhetoric coming out um so i think i think the premise of the question is is correct that they, the polls should have been Uh, a little bit more worldly-wise to to expect some sort of attack from the East. But uh, due to circumstances and due to being uh, uh, distracted, uh, to put it lightly, by the German attack in the West, um, they rather took their eyes off the ball.
1: As you mentioned at the beginning, one of the most common Western images of this campaign, insofar as there are any, is the the iconic one of Polish cavalry attacking German tanks. What would the book actually? What does the book actually uncover in terms of um, the realities of uh, the campaign as per Polish cavalry, and how overall did Polish cavalry perform militarily speaking?
2: Mm. Uh, it's a rather sort of central question, this one, um, because that sort of stereotype, as you say, of cavalry against tanks is one. You know that still is still remarkably durable, and we still hear it. I've, a number of times I've heard it in the last year or so uh, has really been quite mind-boggling. Um, Polish cavalry in 1939, as I said, was really the the elite. It was very much the cream of the Polish army, um, and it's it's remarkably well trained and well drilled, and they 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 fought. Uh, actually surprisingly well even against german tanks and armor in 1939 um of course they didn't charge tanks uh on horseback that would be ridiculous um they char- they essentially they're trained to fight dismounted so they use their horses as uh for, for maneuverability they they dismount they have very effective um, anti-tank rifles and uh, small artillery pieces that they uh, tow along with them. And as I said, fight dismounted, the horses are, are removed to the rear, and they fight remarkably effective, re- effectively, given those constraints. Um, so the idea of Polish cavalry charging tanks in 1939 is nonsensical. Um and one of the things that i wanted to look at was where this myth actually came from um and i i discovered it actually there's there's a couple of engagements early on in the war i think on day 1 even there's a there's an engagement up in the uh up in the polish corridor where polish cavalry actually engage and charge against german infantry now that could be still be even in 1939 could be remarkably effective as an ordinary infantryman if you can imagine being being borne down upon by a, a squadron of uh, a, of Polish cavalry that would be a rather terrifying prospect and it worked rather well and there's a number of instances of uh, Polish cavalry charging infantry and with great effect in 1939 but the problem is of course if you then get countercharged or counterattacked by a column of armor and there's a couple of instances where that happened um, and the event the, the uh, results are all too predictable of, of that engagement so the, the cavalry charge still had its place uh, in warfare but they would never be silly enough to actually charge uh, you know knowingly charge a column of german armor so i wanted to look to look at where that uh, myth came from and it came i think from a uh, an italian uh, news reporter by the name of indra montanelli who was uh, as we would now nowadays say embedded with uh, German troops in 1939, and he witnessed the aftermath of an engagement on the Bzura. One of one of the main um, largest battles of the September campaign was the battle on the Bzura, which is to the west of Warsaw. Um, and he he witnessed one of the uh, the aftermath of one of the engagements on the Bzura. Um, And it was a sort of, a, you know, as you can imagine, a field of of dead bodies of men and horses and everything in between. Um, And it was uh, rather harrowing. And he wrote a piece for the Corriere della Sera, which was then given the title, not by him, but obviously by the sub editors uh, back in Italy, uh, given the title uh, Cavalry Against Tanks. And I think that is where the myth comes from, because that story is then picked up by the German uh, propaganda ministry under Goebbels and is then effectively run with and trumpeted, uh, you know, uh, and with the subtext that, you know, look at these foolish antediluvian primitive Poles who are attacking our our tanks with their horses, um, which is... A, a sort of peculiar reading of Montanelli's piece, because Montanelli's piece is 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 not unsympathetic to the poles, but it just describes this you know, the aftermath of this uh, engagement. So I think that's the origin of the myth. And and then of course once they have this, once the propaganda ministry has this source effectively that they can point to and say, well this isn't us telling this story, this is somebody else. Then they so they run with it, and and you can see this becomes very quickly becomes a main theme. Of German propaganda, of German accounts in that campaign. But it's, as I said, it's It's almost entirely mythical. I mean, the only instance where that would happen is where, as I said, a, a, a Polish cavalry squadron would be uh, sort of countercharged or counterattacked by by German armor. They would never attack German armor uh, in a sort of charge formation. It's a rather unthinkable prospect.
1: And is it not? In fact, the case that in the post-war period, one of the chief uh, purveyors of this particular imagery was the communist regime, the subtext being that uh, white Poland, the Poland of Sanjaka, was backward and therefore defeated, whereas the red Poland of post-1944 was not.
2: That's very true, and uh, I mean this is a, a much wider problem than that. Is that there was nobody effectively uh, post-war to to tell the honest story of 1939. Uh, the Germans obviously went on to greater crimes, uh, so they had much, you know, their historians uh, had had uh, you know greater crimes to de- investigate and expiate. Um, The Soviets insisted all the way through that they they didn't invade Poland in 1939. So it never featured in their historical narrative. You know, for them, as for Putin's Russia, the war only starts in 1941, uh, in spite of all the countries that they managed to attack and overrun in 1939, 1940. Um, The British and the French obviously had their own tribulations and their own victories to, to celebrate and write about. So they didn't write about 1939 and investigate it. So, uh, and as I said, as you intimated, the poles themselves, post-war communist regime, not only had no interest in telling the story of the pre-war regime, the pre-communist regime, uh, it also, you know, actively wanted to paint that regime in as blacker term black terms as possible. So, you have this agenda which, uh, you know, wants to describe the pre-war regime as as rather feckless, as rather, you know, uh, politically corrupt. Uh, you know, ripe for being destroyed and all the rest of it. So uh, it's a much wider problem. But you're you're right. It's it. You know, if you look at um, the work of someone like Andrzej Wajda, the great Polish filmmaker who died not long ago, but one of his earliest films uh, was called um, Lotna, which is uh, actually includes within it a, a beautifully shot scene in black and white um, of uh, Polish cavalry charging German tanks in 1939. Uh, and this was obviously at the behest of the communist regime. Was, I think the film came out in something like 1956. So it, this was very obviously Polish communist propaganda. And as you say, it's a way of uh, blackening the name of the pre-war sanacja regime uh, to, to a, a new generation of Poles to say, you know, this is how corrupt your forebears were. We're not like this. We're much more sort of forward thinking and so on. But it's, it's a way of, of blackening their name. That's absolutely true. But it, but it works. It works just as well in the wider history of the September campaign as in this sort of micro history of, of, uh, of the story of cavalry against tanks.
1: Yes, and that, that uh, film, uh, in some ways rather beautiful, uh, yeah. does have this iconic image of uh, a sword attempting to slash the muzzle of a, of a German tank.
2: Yes, yes. I mean, it's it's it's, uh, it's a beautiful scene, actually. It's beautifully shot. But uh, unfortunately, it's, uh, you know, propagandistic and historical nonsense. Overall, what would be your
1: assessment, militarily speaking, of the Polish army's performance in this campaign?
2: I think within the constraints that they were working within, so both uh, territorial. So obviously, as I said, they are very much up against it territorially being surrounded on three sides Uh, and also in terms of their grand political situation that they um, have secured Western allies. They think they have these powerful allies in the West uh, who will back them up and fight in their name, who actually then don't. So they're effectively betrayed by the Western allies. And I think betrayal is not too big a word. Um, And then, of course, the, uh, the disparity in technology and disparity in numbers of forces Uh, And even in sort of military doctrine, in the modern military doctrine that the Germans had particularly. um, And that, as I said, part of that is cultural and part of that is financial, that Poland simply didn't have the money to invest in any sort of real modernization. Um, It did have some, you know, had uh, something like 300 tanks and they were of a reasonable standard that could, uh, if pushed, they could sort of stand toe to toe with the German tanks of the time, but they simply didn't have enough. The Germans had something like two and a half thousand tanks at this point, so they are they are not the quite the sort of anti-deluvian force that we like to imagine. They are more advanced than that, but in comparison with with Germany, which was then the most advanced military force on the planet, um, they really didn't stand too too much of a chance. But if you bear all of those constraints in mind. In individual instances, you look at places like the Battle of Moava, um, the Battle of uh, Mokra in in the southwest. Um, you look at the counterattack on on the Bzura um, around the, from the tenth to twelfth, when it was in a successful period of the, of the Polish counterattack. You, I think you can see that there is much there in the Polish uh, performance to admire. And that's something that I think has been lost in this rather simplistic narrative of, you know, cavalry against tanks and uh, and the Poles being inept. Uh, they're certainly not inept. They are facing fundamental difficulties. But in, in those circumstances, I think they fight rather well. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? I think it's the the importance of... Uh, as in all of these books, it's it, it, of my books anyway. To to take it uh, on board the, that nuance is important. I think too often, particularly with popular history, um, we tend to have a very simplistic sort of uh, boiled down narrative. This is how it was. It's almost like an elevator pitch. This is how it was. It's you uh, know uh, uh, it's simplified to a point almost of absurdity. Uh, and history, unfortunately, really isn't like that. And this is why this idea of, you know, cavalry against tanks, partly why this has prevailed for so long, because it's a simplistic, straightforward, easy narrative. Um, life isn't like that. And we have to embrace this complexity. We have to, you know, read a bit more around the subject and we have to understand it better. Uh, and I think, you know, secondarily to that is, is I think Poland has had a very uh, tough 20th century for so many reasons and to add to all of that difficulty that it's had it tends to get written out of its own history too often and this is partly linguistic it's partly i think a sort of um a throwback to the cold war that you know poland was behind the iron curtain was uh, to some extent out of sight and out of mind um i think Poland deserves its place in history, and certainly with stories like this, I'm trying to sort of write them back into the history, uh, and uh, I, hope, I hope I can sort of bring a few readers with me on that journey, because it is a fascinating story. Upon
1: that observation, which I agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Morehouse, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles yep. Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Morehouse. My pleasure.